Welcome to Sentient Planet. The whales are far from saved. I mean, the reality is in the last 75 years, our ocean is so degraded. So it's warming, it's warming 40% faster than we even knew six years ago. We've lost 150 million tons of plastics in the ocean with an increase in vessel traffic and seismic surveys and exploration for more oil and gas and military activities. We've raised the ambient noise levels that cetaceans have to function through in the ocean. And then we're taking their food. Hi, everyone. It's Susan. In keeping with our Season 3 focus on beloved whales and dolphins, I'm delighted to introduce you to one of their most dedicated global ambassadors. As an advisor to international animal protection and wildlife conservation organisations, British-born Sue Fisher has worked behind the scenes to advocate on behalf of cetaceans through the International Whaling Commission for the past 30 years. The IWC is the global body of 88 member governments charged with the conservation of whales and the regulation of whaling in the world's oceans. Yes, some countries and indigenous groups still hunt whales today, Sue explains. Last month marked 75 years since the IWC's formation. Sue is one of the primary authors of a new 50-year vision that outlines the actions governments must adopt now to restore the health of our dying oceans, home to cetaceans and at least a million other species, and an ecosystem essential to all terrestrial life on our planet as well. Sue is currently Interim Marine Policy Director International for the Animal Welfare Institute and a board member of the Species Survival Network. I really learned a lot in this interview. Sue is just so knowledgeable about the slew of whale and dolphin species and individuals who inhabit our world the mind-blowing attributes that contribute to their sentience, and the threats that are killing them in the hundreds of thousands. Threats that only we, who claim to love these marine mammals so much, can stop. Sue, you're a lover of whales, dolphins and porpoises, and other endangered species, and a lifetime advocate for their protection and conservation, especially through the International Whaling Commission, or IWC as it's known. As a consultant and advisor, you describe your work as wonky, but yet policy and strategy are so important, I think, when it comes to international collaboration on animal welfare issues. So I think you're uniquely positioned for a rich discussion today about cetaceans, their health and the health of their ocean ecosystems, and what we humans need to do in short order to help them thrive in the 21st century. So thank you for joining me on Sentient Planet. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Let's start with the IWC. Not everybody knows who that body is. So who are they? What's its purpose? And as it turns 75, what's the vision you and others want its members to adopt to guide the work that they need to do over the next 50 years? 
Right. So international law is regulated by treaties. Those are sets of rules that countries who sign the treaty agree to be bound by. And the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling is one of the earliest treaties we have. It's actually the same era as the United Nations, and it's the earliest, I think, convention that regulates wildlife issues. And it established a commission so that the representatives of each member government could come together. And it was originally every year when the IWC was originally setting quotas. It's now every two years. And each member government sends a commissioner as its representative to spend a week or two weeks assessing populations, accepting advice from its scientific committee, and then deliberating and making decisions on the management and the conservation of whales, dolphins, and porpoises, which we we collectively call cetaceans. So its original purpose, and I can speak more about this, was to manage whaling and originally to manage the intense competition that was going on for whales amongst just a handful of countries back in the 1940s. So to make sure every country was getting its its share of whale. That's right. Yes. Well, so we've been killing whales for millennia. I mean, that's been a concerted effort really since the 10th century. It's been a commercial undertaking since the 1600s, but it's really been an industrial undertaking really since the 1900s. And each time a whaling operation has intensified, we see local patterns of overexploitation. But that got completely out of control in the early 1900s as fleets became, I mean, industrialized, essentially. The vessels became faster, the fleets were bigger, their operations were global as they could travel further. They developed exploding harpoons, factory ships that could spend months at sea processing whale meat, freezing it on board. And then they discovered Antarctica, which is the whale's feeding grounds in the southern hemisphere. Right. And that just the industrialization of the industry was absolutely devastating. You know, we were causing extinctions of some populations. A couple of species were lost entirely. And the competition, which was unregulated at that point, was taking out. I mean, we were down to 2% or 4% or 6% of some of the biggest species, the blue whales, the fin whales and the say whales, the humpback whales too. Mm-hmm. So in 1930, well, late 30s, early 40s, the main countries who were in competition came together to try a couple of times to find a way to share the resources as they saw whales. They paused during the World War II and then came back in 1946 and finally agreed this treaty, the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. I think 15 or 14 countries signed it in 1946, which is 75 years ago. And they were all whaling nations. That was the problem. They were all there in the business, not to conserve whales at that point, but to manage them as a resource and share share the bounty between them. Having come together, these countries, uh, it was signed in Washington, D.C. It's known as the Washington Convention sometimes, were actually fairly prescient, I think. They wrote into the treaty a provision for the conservation of whales too. And I think they originally saw that as to conserve them in order to use them. But conservation was written into the treaty. And as the decades went by, the IWC really failed in its first few decades to manage them properly. It was setting quotas that weren't sustainable. It didn't have the scientific underpinning to know how many whales there were and what would be sustainable. So we continue to see population crashes through the 50s and 60s. You know, the interesting thing is that as the whaling became visible to people in the 1960s, as people began to see what was happening to these animals, a movement developed. And it really was the first, I think, environmental movement, or certainly the biggest environmental movement of the 60s and 70s. Where Save people the whale. Saying, 
they've the whale. People were saying enough. Yeah, huge. At the time the IWC was developed, we weren't hunting whales for oil anymore. We had kerosene, you know, by 1935. We were killing them to make margarine. 84% of global whale production in 1935 was to make margarine. Oh, geez. It wasn't a dietary staple. It wasn't, you know, an imperative for anybody to kill these animals. The public was revolted and appalled by this. So as we saw the populations decline and as governments had their populace tell them, we don't want this to be happening anymore. In the 1970s and 80s, there was a movement within the commission to conserve them. And ultimately, in 1982, the commission came together, not by consensus, but by a vote that adopted a global ban on commercial whaling. It's still the landmark decision that people talk about. It saved many species from absolutely certain extinction. It wasn't perfect, and we can come back to its flaws, but it was absolutely fundamental. And what it did was encourage other global conventions to follow suit. So another convention banned international trade in whale products. And collectively, those two decisions were absolutely monumental in their impact on whales. Great. So now the organization IWC has turned 75, I guess, this month, actually. And so um, I've seen that you and other conservationists have put together a vision for what the IWC should be doing over the next 50 years or so. Can we dig into that vision a little bit? Because it's really quite ambitious and exciting. It is. Thank you. It's so necessary. Reality is we haven't saved the whale. I mean, we have an end to commercial whaling, apart from the the small operations still continuing. But the whales are far from saved. I mean, the reality is in the last 75 years, our ocean is so degraded. The terrible things we've done to our oceans are having an impact on cetaceans. So it's warming. It's up. It's warming 40% faster than we even knew six years ago. Right. We've lost 150 million tons of plastics in the ocean since we started producing it in the 1950s. With an increase in vessel traffic and seismic surveys and exploration for more oil and gas and military activities, we've raised the ambient noise levels that cetaceans have to function through in the oceans. And they're they're species that rely on their their hearing to navigate, to find each other, to find their food. Ambient noise is, is a real threat. And then we're taking their food. So over a third of fish stocks today are overexploited. Two thirds are maximally sustainably fished, which means that's as much as you can take to keep the stock viable. We're removing fish from the oceans at a ridiculous rate. These impacts are having direct effects, which you can see. I mean, we've all seen the effect of entanglement of whales in nets, the impact of vessel strikes. But these threats operate in synergies with each other. Their impacts are cumulative. That makes them worse. It makes them harder to predict, you know, the effects for individual animals and the effects for populations. So it's not just hundreds of thousands of whales and dolphins that we're losing each year entangled in fishing nets. We don't know how many we're losing from the insidious effects of consuming microplastics or from pollution. We know it has impacts on their fertility, on their immunity, but ultimately we don't know what the long-term impacts are of pollution and then now obviously climate change. What a travesty. So, So here we have a situation where we're not harpooning whales, at least not to the extent that we once did in the millions. But there's all these new modern threats that they're facing that um, the IWC needs to do something about. And you seem confident that these threats are something that the IWC can do something about. 
It can. That's right. So since its inception, it's had a scientific committee that is really the world's leading body in cetacean science and understanding. And since 2003, it's had a conservation committee, which is responsible for threat mitigation. So it takes the advice, the science from the scientific committee and turns it into solutions. And over the years, and certainly over the most recent years, the IWC has been addressing ship strikes, bycatch, marine debris, plastics, pollution, climate change. And it's developing these threat mitigation initiatives, mainly at this point for bycatch, which, as I said, takes 300,000 at least cetaceans a year and an unknown number that are entangled and live with their entanglement or live with their injuries and maybe die slowly or die later. Mm -hmm. And then probably tens of thousands of animals killed by vessels. So those two issues, the IWC has been working hard on. It has these, these models it's developed to anticipate the threats, to understand you know, where the hotspots are, which regions of the ocean are the bycatch more likely to happen or the ship strikes more likely to happen, which cetaceans are more vulnerable. It's fairly simple, for example, for vessel strikes. You need to keep the whales and the vessels apart, and you can do that by rerouting ships. You can do it by requiring them or asking them to slow down. You can do that by having observers on board the ships themselves or on vessels in the area that can alert them when whales are around. But you can tweak those models to be specific to different species and specific to different shipping sectors. And in the same way, you can have models which are specific in fisheries to different species and then to different types of fisheries using different nets. And the IWC has developed these models for these two threats. They're really impactful. But they need to be scaled up. They need to be applied globally. And that's the vision that we have, that the IWC invests finally from its core funds and it goes looking for external funding to make sure it can scale up these mitigation efforts. So would the idea then be that ultimately uh, the the government members of the IWC would agree to some sort of international regulations that would affect shipping noise, strikes, all of the things that you're talking about, um, they would agree to changing those industries and putting some regulations in place? I think regulations are needed. I don't think they need to be implemented by the International Whaling Commission. It's the expert body that can give advice to the relevant international authorities. So vessel strikes, for example, we have the International Maritime Authority, which regulates shipping. And the IWC has worked closely with the IMO over the last few years, giving advice about what regulations should look like. And the same for bycatch. The IWC is working with the various different tuna fishery organizations to give them advice on how to avoid catching cetaceans. That is replicable across other fisheries. And it's not the IWC that needs to be adopting these rules, but it needs to believe in itself at the center of these efforts. So from where you sit, Sue, and your observations of the government representatives around you, do you get a sense of a desire for these changes, a willingness that they would like to make these changes? Yes, absolutely. There's a cost implicit in causing these harms to cetaceans and ultimately possibly these extinctions to cetaceans, not least that the public cares about this. You know, and we've seen with tuna-dolphin interactions, people are prepared to pay more for tuna that's dolphin safe. The various industries are aware that the public can have an impact on their business. And I think they want to do the right thing too. But, you know, there's a cost, obviously, in slowing down your vessels or rerouting them because whales are in the area feeding at the time. Hi, it's Susan. 
Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth, and the humans dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. So those are part of the solutions in the vision. There's a statement in your vision document that uh, that I was alluding to earlier that I thought was really ambitious and exciting, and that is the statement around returning cetacean populations to pre-industrial levels, essentially. Can you talk about that a little bit and how likely you think it is that we could succeed at something like that? Yes. Well, as I said, we've lost... And for some of the species, the blue whale in Antarctica, for example, 98% were lost. And even 70 years after the first prohibitions were placed on blue whale hunting in that region, we've only seen a recovery of about 1%, which is shocking. We've seen the humpbacks recover in that area, but the blue whales really haven't. And the say whales and the fin whales haven't either. We need to look at what's going on. Why is that not happening? And one of the factors we're concerned about in Antarctica is that their food isn't there, partly because we're harvesting krill, which is the foundation of the food chain and the diet of the whales in the Southern Ocean um, at such a rate that we may be inhibiting them from recovery. But if you allowed those species to recover and you saw what they were actually doing for their ecosystem, we'd all want the whales to recover. I mean, the reality is they're their own farmers. If you look at the Antarctic ecosystem, There's very little iron in the ocean. That's a mineral that's not naturally occurring in Antarctica. And the whales were bringing it. They were coming in their migratory paths to their feeding grounds and eating and pooping and pooping significant amounts of iron that fed the diatoms, fed the plankton, that fed the krill. That's the foundation of the food chain. So it may even be that the absence of whales is what's causing the absence of whales because the poop and the iron isn't there to farm the oceans that they need to feed from. So yes, if we allowed whales to recover to their pre-exploitation levels, we would see a whole suite of environmental benefits, not just that they are the basis of the food web, but they are sequesterers in their own right of carbon. Their enormous bodies sequester significant amounts of carbon. And when they die, those bodies fall to the seabed and they continue to hold the carbon down there. We don't know, you know, what the effect would be on climate change if whales were able to recover. But it would certainly be significant. I mean, we took out almost 3 million of them in the 20th century alone. And that fundamentally changed the ecosystem. We have no idea what that ecosystem could look like if we allowed them to recover. And that would have knock-on benefits, you know, for the oceans at large. I mean, they're localized areas where the whales feed and breed that you see these localized blooms of plankton. It's hard to generalize about, you know, global benefits. But it would certainly be a benefit to fish stocks, um, and it would certainly bring advantages to climate change. Just incredible. I mean, it really is just another very powerful example of how interrelated the natural world is. So I'm trying to imagine then, um, on the one hand, we're saying it would be fantastic, and through some of these mitigations that are being recommended, we may be able to see populations rebound. At the same time, it's difficult for populations to rebound in an ocean that's unhealthy, and yet they are contributors to a healthy ocean. And so it's a little bit of which comes first. 
It is. And we're already making efforts to establish marine protected areas for cetaceans. The IWC itself has a program of whale sanctuaries, but they're really, they're no whaling zones. They're not protected areas as we would want to see them with management plans and conservation objectives. Whales migrate, so it's hard to contain them and have a test area. But we see when we allow cetacean populations to recover, there are immediate benefits to the ecosystem. It just makes sense to be protecting as many areas as we can for our own benefit as well as their own. Do you think, Sue, do you think we can get to a place where we can just leave these animals alone? It's so interesting to hear you talk about all the different ways that we need to and do manage these incredible beings. It also seems to me that these animals probably don't want human management and they just need to be left alone. Do you think we could get to that place one day? I hope so. And I I hate to think of us as managing them. I think we need to do a better job of managing their habitat because it's our habitat too. But yes, we've seen them for far too long as resources. I mean, they're described as resources in, in the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. We've moved away from seeing them as consumable products, I think. But we see them as sort of metaphorical consumable products still where we see them as targets of whale watching. And, you know, while that does bring economic benefits to communities who might otherwise have been whaling, we have to be sure that whale watching is conducted properly, sustainably, humanely. And so that's another management aspect that the IWC, I think, has a responsibility for. But their non-use, just leaving them alone, like you say, just in an unestimable value, just to let them be whales, do what they do in their ecosystems for us to just enjoy knowing that they're out there, even if most of us never see them. Non-use, what a great term. Our words are so powerful. Is non-use some language that gets used at the IWC level? It's beginning to, yes, absolutely. So one of the things that the IWC Scientific Committee has begun to do in the last few years is look at the ecological value of whales and trying to establish exactly what benefits they're bringing to their ecosystem. The commission passed a resolution a couple of years ago, you know, requiring itself to take into account these ecological benefits in all its decision making. So it will look at consumptive use. It will look at non-consumptive use in terms of whale watching. But I'm confident that it will be looking at non-use as well as a value. That would be a very happy day to celebrate. It would. I'm not sure everyone realises that even though the IWC ended commercial whaling in 1982, as you said at the top of this interview, and that activity was banned, there are still countries that actually still hunt whales to this day. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yes, there are. So the moratorium was adopted in 1982 and came into effect in 1986. The vast majority of countries gave up in good faith. You know, hung up their harpoons, repurposed their whaling vessels and, and moved on, some of them to whale watching for a much more robust economy. Oh, we should come back to that. The countries make more money whale watching than they ever did hunting, it sounds like you're saying. It's a $2 billion a year industry, yeah. whale watching. So yes, absolutely worth far more than whale meat is today. But so back in 1982, three countries were not willing to give up. So Norway took what we call a legal objection to the decision, which It's a get-out-of-jail-free card, effectively, in international law. It allowed them to continue doing what they were doing, and it's legal. That's just what we deal with in international treaties, unfortunately. Iceland decided it wasn't going to stick around, and it quit the IWC. And Japan decided that an objection wasn't the way it wanted to go, and it decided to exploit a provision in the treaty that allows countries to take whales for scientific purposes, for scientific research. 
and it was in the original treaty. It was never intended to be used on the scale that Japan exploited it for. Mm-hmm. But Japan started a scientific whaling program originally in Antarctica. It expanded it to the North Pacific, where it took whales purportedly for research to measure their length, to look at their stomach contents, to you know look at the different age of the whales in the population, gender. It was you know ludicrous pseudoscience, ludicrous. And in fact, the International Court of Justice. In 2014, when Australia and New Zealand brought a lawsuit against Japan, called it, you know, didn't call it ludicrous, but said it was not for the purposes of science. Not that that stopped Japan. It was a ruse for continuing to take whales for well meat for the domestic market. Um, a domestic market that doesn't necessarily really want to consume the vast amounts of whale meat that the Japanese were bringing back. No, absolutely. So if you look back at the Second World War, when Japan was reliant on diverse food sources, whales constituted about half of their meat intake. And if you look at it, you know, 1980, when the moratorium began, dramatic reduction. And then today, the demand is so low from the Japanese public, typically from older people who remember eating it, you know, in the, in the 1950s and 60s, but certainly not from young people who love whales and have no interest in eating this strange, not particularly tasty product. Similarly, in, in Norway and Iceland, demand is down. Interestingly, in Iceland, although they did returned to the IWC in the early 2000s and resumed whaling. They haven't caught any whales since 2017, or at least fin whales since 2017 and minke whales more recently. So I'm holding my fingers, crossing my fingers and holding my breath that we may see the end of whaling in Iceland. Not counting on it, it's revived itself before, but that's a hope we're holding at the moment. Well, yeah, and Iceland really has quite an aggressive campaign out there to expand their tourism industry and bring more and more international visitation into the country. And it would seem that given the public awareness and love for whales, that that would put them at odds. Potentially that activity might uh, be off-putting to at least parts of the tourism market. You would think so, yes. And actually, Iceland has a great whale-watching industry. The whales are just offshore, and there's some wonderful whale-watching companies in Iceland that offer fantastic tours right next door to the whaling areas. (laughs) I wonder how they justify that. Separate, thankfully, but yes, the cognitive dissonance is, is incredible in Iceland. And it, you know, and it, mm. the sad fact was that a lot of the demand for whale meat when whales were still being taken was from tourists who were curious, you know, would maybe even come off a whale watching boat and see whale meat on the menu in Reykjavik and decide to try it. It, it wasn't wow. domestic demand that was driving a lot of the whaling in Iceland. Your cognitive dissonance again. And yes. um, that's a term that's been coming up a lot, actually, on this podcast this season. Everybody seems to be uh, talking about that and something that we need to break through on all sorts of levels. It's a human flaw, isn't it? Yes. It certainly <laughs> is. So what about Japan? Have they, just going back to them for a moment, have they stopped that whaling for scientific purposes in the Southern Ocean? Yes, they have. And that's actually one of the work areas I'm, I'm most excited about and proudest of that I've worked on over the last few years with a number of different NGOs, that Japan was forced out of its high seas whaling um, in Antarctica and on the high seas of the North Pacific. It left the IWC in 2019. It was never going to get the moratorium overturned, the whaling ban, and decided it was time to go and just go it alone on a domestic basis. Having subsidized the industry to the tune of tens of millions of dollars every year just right. to keep it going because the demand wasn't there to pay for the whale meat that funded the whaling operation. It said since it's left the IWC 
that those subsidies will not continue indefinitely. We haven't yet seen a drop dead date where they will end. And we know that the one remaining factory whaling company is entirely dependent on those subsidies. And in fact, the mothership that processes the meat is old now and definitely needs replacing. So the company is facing not just a loss of its its income from subsidies, but potentially a huge capital outlay to replace that vessel. So we're watching with interest in Japan, but certainly the trend, at least in terms of demand, continues inexorably downward. Right. We would like to see the catches reflect that. Sadly, the catches don't always reflect demand and the meat just ends up in freezers um, or turned into products that the government might promote a campaign to encourage young people to eat whale meat ice cream or whale burgers or whale pizza or something that they think young people might get a taste for. Or in school lunch programs, quite a few prefectures in Japan serve whale meat, provide it for free or at least cheap to school districts to serve to kids like they did post-war years when it was a staple. Now they're trying to do it just to create a market. Seed interest, yeah, create a market, increase demand. Yeah, really very interesting. So multiple pressures, it sounds like, have been brought to bear on Japan. So a diminishing domestic market, the work at the IWC, and of course there's also groups like the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, Greenpeace, obviously Sea Shepherd's done a lot of um, pretty amazing direct action in the Southern Ocean actually putting their people between the harpoons and the whales down there. You know, there's Whale Wars, the TV show on Animal Channel. So there's been a lot of activity there too with activism as a direct action campaign. Do you think that that has helped as well to change things with the Japanese whaling industry? Um, I'm not sure. It certainly brought attention to the issue outside of Japan. I mean, actually what I'm more excited to see at the moment is the growth of an advocacy movement within Japan. I mean, that has been absent for decades, been a few individuals who've committed their lives to whale conservation and to ending whaling, but not a movement like we've seen in the rest of the world. And it's exciting to see young people now And I think partly the drive hunts in Taiji were the original motivating factor, but they've watched really carefully the government and its its position on whaling as well. And they're smart and they're sophisticated in their thinking. Whatever the West might say to Japan, I don't think the government particularly cares, but I think they're going to be paying attention to what their citizens think and feel about this issue. That is a wonderful development. And for listeners who don't know about the captures that happen in Taiji um, of dolphins. There's that incredible documentary made a few years ago called The Cove. So that's where people can learn more about that. Just following this line of thinking a little bit, where do you and you personally and the IWC stand on the hunting of whales by Indigenous peoples? And given that we're both based here in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, what comes to mind for me is the Makah Nation. 
and they continue to exert uh, what they see as their right to hunt and kill whales. I know this is a really sensitive topic, but I am interested in your perspective. Yeah, so back in 1946, hunting of whales by Indigenous people wasn't an original focus of the IWC. It was really about managing commercial whaling. But when whaling was banned worldwide, there was a recognition that Indigenous people who were reliant on whales shouldn't be caught up in that ban. So the IWC created a category, essentially, of Aboriginal subsistence whaling. Odd title, but that's what they've called it. Where the scientific committee studies the populations and provides advice on what would be safe catch limits that meet the documented subsistence and cultural needs of the indigenous groups that are recognized by the IWC to take a certain number of whales. And that continues today. The IWC sets six-year quota blocks and the hunting nations are Eskimos in Alaska, the Inuit in Greenland, and in the Russian Far East, and then a somewhat anomalous hunt known as Aboriginal subsistence whaling in the Grenadines in the Caribbean. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, Yes. Another, Another long story. Yes, so the Macaw in Washington state. The Marine Mammal Protection Act in the US, which was created in the 1970s, protects all whales. So in order for a tribal grouping in the US to be able to hunt whales, they would need a waiver issued by the National Marine Fishery Service for that hunt. And since the 1990s, the Macaw tribe have been asking permission from the IWC and then from the US government to be allowed to revive the hunt that they have a tradition of. I mean, up until the 1920s, they were taking grey whales for their subsistence and cultural purposes. How many grey whales were they taking? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. They're asking now for up to 42 over six years. So that would be including animals that were struck but lost. So to kill 24 over that period. They have taken a couple illegally since they made their quota request. And the government has been processing this request and the IWC processing this request for years now. So we recognize the tribal sovereignty. They do have a treaty right to fish off the coast of Washington. But we're concerned that there was a recent decision by an administrative law judge in Washington to decide what the next steps would be for their request. We're not entirely happy with his recommendations that they don't go far enough to alleviate the risks of allowing the hunt. Even if you accept that, you know, a 70 year gap in consumption, whether the macaw still have a nutritional need, having not hunted for 70 years, if you look at the actual sustainability issues, we have concerns that the numbers they're wanting to take and the process they're proposing to take them doesn't sufficiently safeguard whales from the Western North Pacific, so from the Russian coast. We find that the Western grey whales, the only number around 300, do find their way over to our coast, all the way down the Oregon coast too. So passing the Macaws hunting grounds and we can't afford to lose a single one of those whales. Right. And that's where my mind is going. You know, I, I hear what you're saying about a cultural and traditional right. At the same time, we're also talking about all of these grave threats that exist in the modern world that are already putting these animals in peril, it seems like to add anything further to those threats, it feels very abhorrent to me. Yeah. I mean, we just, that's the thing. We just don't know what the impacts of climate change and other threats are going to be in the longer term. And when we know for these grey whales up our our Western coast, we've lost about 25% of them recently in what we call an unusual mortality event. 
people up and down our coast are seeing dead whales. They're seeing skinny whales on their migrations. And we know we've lost about a quarter of the population. We've lost a quarter of the population of grey whales in the last what couple of years, right? Well, we've declared the event since 2019, so they would have been counting the mortality before then. And do we know? Do we know the cause of those die-offs? No, it's probably a combination of factors. Clearly, it's loss of food. Whether the fish are gone, or the food that the whales eat are gone, or it's moved because of climate changes. As oceans warm, we see prey moving, and the whales perhaps have to go further to find it or spend longer on their migrations to find it. We, we don't always necessarily know what we're talking about when we're talking about a population of whales. So there is a distinct group within the Eastern Pacific gray whales who spend time off the coast of Washington state that could be a distinct unit, genetically different from the rest of the population, which would need actually additional protection, not to be lumped in with the bigger population when you're deciding what a sustainable quota would be. There could be like 240 of those whales they're also at risk of being taken by the macaw hunt. We hope that the best available science is going to prevail. Right. So at this point, there has not been permission granted from the US government for those guys to go ahead. It's interesting, you know, this language around sustainable quotas and impact on populations. I think you could also make an argument about impact on individual animals, though. Oh, absolutely. We know that whaling is just an incredibly, has a torturous and a very slow, painful death for the animal. And so there's a whole moral question around why we would continue to do something that we, that we as humans know creates great suffering for these animals on an individual level. Yeah. No, whaling is a deeply inhumane process. If you look at the rules we have for slaughter of domestic animals, and try and apply that to an animal which you know, lives underwater, surfaces for you know, a fraction of time. You're on a moving vessel. If you're even firing a harpoon grenade, you're moving. You may be in a choppy sea state. You know, it may not be calm conditions and clear visibility. And you have to fire that grenade as close to the brain as possible because you want to deliver percussive force that kills the whale instantaneously or at least makes it insensible instantaneously. Even in commercial whaling operations, which should be more efficient, are taking awfully long times to die. We'd never countenance that under slaughterhouse conditions for terrestrial animals or for even for wildlife being killed by hunters. And we know they're sentient. We know they suffer pain. We know they flee from vessels. So we know they feel fear. Just no, it's unthinkable, the cruelty that's inflicted on an individual whale in a hunt. So let's let's talk about that a little bit in terms of um, just how incredible these beings are. So we know that our treatment of whales becomes even more abhorrent. And our treatment of them mostly in the past, but as we've talked about in this interview, some that still continues today, when we view our past through the lens of what we know now, scientifically and anecdotally and experientially, about these animals, we have so much more information now about just how incredible they are. There's an ever-growing body of research on sentience. So what are we learning about these animals? For instance, I recently heard that we're even discovering new species of whales. We are. You know, we've discovered several new species recently. There's a whale close to home off the coast of the US and a dolphin off the coast of Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay, both discovered in the last few years, completely new species. But as soon as we discovered them, we categorized them as critically endangered. I mean, it's that's the trouble. So the dolphin species, Lahili's bottlenose dolphin, only about 360 probably in existence. Where are they? Um, off Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay. Okay. 
the bottlenose dolphin we think about as being one species is actually a whole complex of different species of individual species. So Lahili is, is a whole new species of bottlenose dolphin. Wow. And similarly, we're calling it the Rice's whale off the coast of the US, but it's part of the complex of Brutus whales, one of the larger species. But there are only about 50 of them in the Gulf of Mexico. That's it. And we can't afford to lose a single one. And yet a couple of years ago, one was found in absolutely pristine condition, but dead because it had ingested some plastic and a shard of hard plastic had perforated its stomach. Mm. I know, and that was one fiftieth of a brand new population that we'd lost because we can't take care of, <laughs> of our environment. Yeah. So yeah. as fast as we discovered them, we're, we're putting them on the endangered species lists. It's so sad. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about the sentience of these animals, if you can, and just, you know, how incredible they are in terms of culture and language and behaviors and intelligence, of course. Yeah. I mean, they have cultures in the same way as, as humans talk about having different cultures. They have dialects in their languages. I mean, many people know about the humpback whale songs. The Voyager missions in the 60s contain recordings of humpback whales. We sent that out into space in case aliens could decipher it, you know, millennia from now, because we couldn't. We just found it beautiful. I love that. <laughs> and yeah, so they do. The humpback vocalizations change over time. They change in ocean basins so that you know they have regional dialects. We know that orcas have dialects too. The poor orca that was captured 50 years ago off the coast of Washington and is living in a tank still, still vocalizes using a language her mother, who's still alive out at sea, would actually recognize. It's Tokotai, yeah. Tokotai. Individual populations hold these languages. They learn the matrilineal societies. The mothers are teaching their calves where the good fat salmon are, you know, where the food is, probably what vessels to avoid back when we were whaling. And by removing individuals from a population, you just don't know what damage you're doing to the survival of that whole population by taking out important cultural units. It'd be like taking a grandfather or a child from a human family. It would be, absolutely. And we you know when we talk about, and I hate talking about the sustainability of removals and what populations or what stocks, that's a horrible word, we should be conserving. We shouldn't just be thinking about population groupings and genetically distinct populations. We should be thinking about cultural groupings too because of the significance that they have for each other. Yeah. So that's evolving. We're learning never fast enough. It's just harder because they're underwater. I mean, that's the reality. The science is so much harder. Yeah, they're probably very glad that they live underwater and have some distance from us. Yes. Sue, have you had personal encounters with whales and dolphins in the wild? I'm just wondering if you'd like to share a story or two. Yeah, not as much as I would have liked. My work is unfortunately somewhat desk and meeting based, but I did. I had the privilege, unbelievable, last was going to last me a lifetime, traveling to Mexico to the lagoons where the gray whales that we've talked about breed. Um, and I spent a few days going out in little boats, sitting in the water, watching mothers with their newborn calves and encouraging the calves to come up and explore the boats. The whales were relaxed. The calves were curious. They would come up literally within inches of boat and spy hop. Whales can put themselves vertical, stick their heads out of the water. And both the mothers and the babies came to the side of the boat and spy hopped, towering above me. And the eye was looking for humans and made eye contact. 
sense. There was, you know, cross-species communication going on in the boat. Wow. It was just the most amazing experience. I don't think I'll ever match that with any other wildlife encounter. It was incredible. So that's down in San Ignacio? That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. I'm also interested in how you came to your career as an animal advocate. I bet that was no accident. So tell me, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, it was an accident. I've always loved animals, never particularly whales, just animals generally. And I was early 1990s working as a lawyer in a commercial law firm in London and realizing I had chosen my career very poorly. I was totally unfulfilled, not enjoying it. And it just so happened that my roommate at the time worked in the same building as a conservation organization. And she must have been meeting people who worked there, you know, in the hallways and told me, you know, if you want to volunteer, why don't you go and check out this group? And, you know, maybe you can offer something. So I just I knocked on the door one day and said, you know, I'm a lawyer. Here are my my skill set. Anything I can do. I love animals. What can I do to be useful? And they sent me down the hallway to the team who were working on on whale issues and asked me if I could research and write a report on the IWC and on the threats to whales, which I spent a couple of months as a volunteer doing. And I was completely hooked. That was it almost 30 years ago. And that's all I've done ever since. I haven't practiced law. It's been all about the whales ever since. (laughs) Oh, what a wonderful, happy accident. Great for you and great for the animals as well. Whales and dolphins, they're so beloved globally. What can people do to help in the fight for their preservation? Oh, be a good steward and think about your actions. I know we feel removed, particularly if we don't live near the coast and don't see them. But remember, everything we do, everything we do as humans affects the ocean. So the plastic you consume and you discard, it ends up there, like that shard that was embedded in the the Brutus Well stomach. The microplastics that the shards turn into bioaccumulate and whales are consuming them when they eat fish. But we've no idea what that's doing to their immune systems. Think about your contribution to climate change. We know the oceans produce 80% of the oxygen we breathe and it holds about 40% of the CO2 we emit. But as we're warming the oceans, that's less effective, that process. And we can't afford for that to happen. And the warming's affecting where the whales find their food, making them more vulnerable. So Before you fly, before you drive, think about the impact that climate change is having on the part of the world you can't see, you know, under the oceans. Think about your shopping. The container vessels that bring your package from China are hitting whales. The 300,000 dolphins and porpoises and whales that suffocate in fishing gear. Think about that when you decide what fish to eat or whether to eat fish. So there's a lot we can do. Just think before you consume And we'll all do the planet a favour, I think. Well, I'm going to hold a vision of the vision that you guys are outlining for a world that has an ocean that, or has many oceans that are healthy and has abundance, again, of rebounding millions and millions of whales and dolphins and porpoises. And I thank you so much for your time and everything you're doing. I hope you keep the IWC on its toes. (laughs) Thank you. We'll do our best. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade.
Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening.